pain. I come by it honestly, but like a distant shadow kept at bay on a sunny day, it walks with me. And this constant companion soon winds up the pace, paving the way to the stone-clutched hands and blinded blame. I'm doing everything it takes to stay in the race. But this domain, pain's lair, this space, the anti-grace, day after day, it drags me up, out, and away, unrelenting, despite what I may say, requiring a locked step with its terms, pain, that violent mainstay. But there has got to be a better way, an easy yoke, a light of day, one where mere effect and causality bow down to divinity, the one who is beckoning come. So step beyond, catch your breath, Hurts, rot, wrong. But now's the time to find healing to the depths. Welcome, everybody, to the weekend. I missed being with you last weekend. I had the opportunity of being in Africa where I was training about 100 pastors from over 10 nations in West Africa. And it was a great time. And uh, some of them just had such tremendous stories, and I didn't realize how many of them face persecution in their particular nation. A couple of pastors shared with me how their lives are in danger almost every day because of terrorists who want to get rid of the Christians, want to destroy churches and the homes of believers. In fact, one pastor told me in the village next to him, 200 houses were burned down, 34 people were killed, and uh, this is a common occurrence. So while we're always thinking about Ukraine and praying for them, let's remember that around the world, tragedies happen on a fairly regular basis that we don't think about or even know about. I asked him, I said, where do you get the courage and the faith every day to face death. And his response to me was, it's because I know that God is with me. I want you to know, Wooddale Church, that you are making an impact and a difference around the world with your prayers and with your giving especially. See, I couldn't have gone there and encouraged them and trained them if you didn't give. And you know something? 20 cents of every dollar that you give ends up training, encouraging, building up, and supporting God's work in some of the most difficult places in the world. So if you've not yet partnered with us, I want to encourage you to go online. You see a little tab there that says give. It'll drop down, give you different ways that you can be our partner in reaching people for the hope of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who do, thank you so much. I just want you to know that those pastors are grateful for your support and also for your prayers. Keep it up. Well, listen, we're getting ready to enter the Easter season. It's coming right around the corner. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to jump a little bit ahead in our series from head to leb, leb being the Hebrew word from heart, and get right into the whole scene of the passion of Christ, his suffering and his death. And I'm calling this season hope 
Because out of his suffering and out of his death, Jesus brings forth hope for you and for me. And that hope is his life, the exchange of his life for your life and my life. And all we have to do is believe it, accept it, and act on it. And we will experience that eternal life. So let me ask you a question. Do you believe? Now that may sound odd to many of you who are watching at one of our venues, one of our campuses, or somewhere around the world who already knows Jesus. Why would I be asking you, do you believe? The reason I'm asking you that is because I ask it of myself often. Because I know I believe with my head. But sometimes I have a hard time believing with my leb, with my heart. What I mean by that is it's easy to say we believe, but never really live or demonstrate that belief in our lives. I remember several years ago, a book came out by author and pastor Craig Groeschel. And the title of this book caught my attention. It was The Christian Atheist. Believing in God, but living as if he doesn't exist. And I read that title, and I thought, my goodness, am I a Christian atheist? Because sometimes it just feels like, you know, I go to the motions, but, but where is that keen sense of God's presence? And where's that keen sense of living out God's presence in my life? You and I, we live in a world today that wants to admire certain qualities of Jesus, but doesn't necessarily want to embrace him as God wants to admire certain qualities of the Word of God, certain ethical principles, you know, certain proverbs, but doesn't want to embrace all of God's Word as God's revelation of himself and the truth to you and to me. We want Jesus to be a guru like other religious gurus like Confucius or Buddha, but we, you know, we don't want him to be God. But when you read the scriptures carefully, what is so obvious is that Jesus never saw himself as just a religious leader. He didn't see himself as one among many or the best of many. Jesus presented himself as the one true God. And I want to take you to an incident in John chapter 18. It's too long for me to put it all on the screen. So I'm going to read it to you out of our Bible that we use here at our campus and by the way, if you ever need a Bible, let the campus pastor know, and uh, he'll make sure that you get one. If you're online somewhere and you don't have a Bible, let us know. We'll try to get one to you, okay? But listen to what it says in John chapter 18, uh, begin at verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers. That's about 200 soldiers. And some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing that all was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you're looking for? Who do you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happens that the words that he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. 
Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Jesus, in that incident, makes one of the greatest declarations in all of history. He presents himself as very God to his followers. And not just to them, but to every follower, to you and to me as well. I am God. Look what he says in verse 4 and 5, just so we get it clear. He said, who are you looking for? Jesus and Nazarene, they replied, he replied, I am he, Jesus said, I am he. Now, in the original language, he does not exist, okay? So what you really have in the original language is I am. But the translators add he because in our English language, it doesn't make sense to just say I am. For instance, if you asked me who I am and I just looked at you and I said I am, you would be waiting for me to say my name, right? I am Dale, or I am tired, or I am something. But if I just looked at you and said, I am, that would be very confusing to you. But that's, in essence, what Jesus said to the soldiers that had come to arrest him. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And that's a very sacred name for God. Is that name Yahweh. And Many Jews will not even say out loud the name of Yahweh because it is considered to be so holy and so sacred that you don't even want to dare utter that name, I am. In fact, in John 8, 58, Jesus came right out and said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. And I'm telling you what, that really upset Many of the religious Jews, it was on, you know, it was on the verge of, it was blasphemy in their ears that this guy from Nazareth, this young rabbi, would dare even speak in a way that claims to be the sacred, holy name of God. But that's who Jesus says we have to come to terms with. That's how he presents himself to us as the great I am. Now, what's really interesting about this, as one Messianic rabbi brings out, is that without realizing it, in a way, we, we say God's name all the time. Because anytime you or I say, I am, for instance, I am Dale, or I am Susie, or I am whoever you are, in a sense, you're kind of bringing God's name into it. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, you and I are created in the image and the likeness of God, aren't we? Therefore, when I say, I am Dale, in a sense, what I'm admitting to is, you know, I am an extension of God. I am his creation. I was made by God. In his mind, I came to be. In his will, I came to be. So I can say that, that I live because he is living I love because he is loving. I do because he is always doing. I am created in his image and his likeness. And so are you. Now, I can reject that. I can ignore that. 
I can trample all over it, or I can accept it. I can own it, and I can let it settle into my very being. Look what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. That's such an endearing term. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share in his suffering. You hear what Paul is saying? We've talked about this verse. I love this verse. I use it a lot. He's saying, listen, you, a mortal human being, as you have believed in Christ, the spirit of the living God has now come into your life, into your lab, into the depths of your being. You have received God into you. You are his tabernacle. In fact, Paul goes on in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth, including you and me. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that powerful who he claims to be and who he wants to be in our lives and how he's reconciled us back into a relationship with himself? No other religious figure has ever said anything like that. Only Jesus claims to be very God himself, the beginningless and endless God who wants to bring eternal life, not just life that never ends, but a quality of life into our very lab, into our very heart, into our every being. Does that make your heart beat a little bit faster to realize that the God of the universe wants to dwell in your life and my life? You see, if you and I cannot accept Jesus being very God, if we can't accept that God is the one who brought everything into being, like Paul says there in the book of Colossians, that the only way that we can explain how we all got, got here, how this universe showed up, is, is by magic. It just magically kind of happened. And I would suggest that takes far greater faith than to believe that God himself who has always been, who is beginningless and endless, called it into being. Reminds me of something that C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity. You may have heard this before, but it's worth hearing again. He's writing and he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing, Lewis says, we must not say. A man, who has, a man who is merely a man and said that sort of thing that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He, was, he has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. So do you believe? And if you believe, is there proof of your belief? Jesus didn't come to make you, be more, make you and me to be more moral or ethical. He came to radically transform us from the inside out. Do you crave that? Do you desire that presence in your life? I do. I crave that. I desire that for me and and for our church. And not just Whitdale Church, but God's church all around the world. That we would come alive with his very presence. You see, Jesus isn't on Facebook. And he's not looking for likes from you and me. Okay, He's not willing to be one of the top ten great religious leaders that have ever existed. He says that he is very God. Now, that's the greatest claim that's ever been made in history. I want to talk to you now about the biggest problem that has ever existed in history. And I want to use an incident as an illustration of this problem an incident that was mentioned in the passage that we just looked at. And here's where it is, okay? It says in John 18, 6, that when they asked, you know, where's Jesus of Nazareth? And he said, I am he. Jesus said, I am he. It says that they all drew back and fell to the ground. I would love to see that scene. How about you? 200 plus soldiers. I am he. Boom, they all fall backwards on their backs. What happened there? What caused that? I believe what caused that was a manifestation of his glory. That in that moment, Jesus released a sense of his glory. And it overcame them. And they literally fell backwards as a result of experiencing his glory. Here's the deal. You cannot, you cannot come into the presence of a holy God and maintain your footing You and I cannot approach a holy God as sinful creatures and in any way stand before him because we are sinful and he is holy. And that creates this this problem. You know, if you go back to the Old Testament, we hear a lot about the kavod or the glory of God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, after the temple is complete, they bring in the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies. And it says that the trumpets were blaring And the choirs were singing. And I love what it says uh, toward the end of the passage in verse 14. It says, The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of God. They just, they couldn't be in there with that. Or Isaiah, when he's in the temple, in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, and suddenly he sees the glory of God, and he says, Woe is me! You know, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. He became aware of his sinfulness. And he just felt like, you know, it's going to be all over for me. I've seen the glory of God. Or I think about Peter in Luke chapter 5 after Jesus caused that miracle of a huge catch of fish. I mean, Peter had to 
get his buddies over there to help pull the fish in. And then all of a sudden he sinks to his knees in those flipping, flopping, slimy fish. And he says to Jesus, get away from me. I am such a sinner. He became so aware of the glory and the presence of God. How can you not have God in your life and be aware of it? I remember years ago when I was doing a mentorship at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary under a guy by the name of Haddon Robinson. I had to preach to the Gordon-Conwell Seminary faculty and staff and graduate students. And I'm a young man back then, and uh, I had my sermon ready. In fact, I spoke on John chapter 13, and I still, I can still feel how nervous and scared I was. I mean, behind this big pulpit, my legs literally were quivering and shaking. And my mouth was dry and my armpits were like a waterfall. My goodness, at that time, some of the most esteemed scholars in evangelicalism were teaching there at Gordon Theological Seminary. And I was so nervous to be in their presence. Listen, if, if we get nervous being in the presence of people that we look up to or we respect or are smarter than us or better looking than us or stronger than us, how do we think we can even stand before God? His holy and sacred presence. And yet so oftentimes, we just kind of trample in, don't we? Without an awareness of who it is that's come to inhabit us. Who it is that's come to indwell us. And until we come to grips with that, until we allow his presence to be released in our lives, we're not going to look any different to the world around us than how they see themselves. And what people need to see today isn't you and me, but they need to see Jesus living in you and me. We've discovered already that the great I am has made his home in your life and in my life, in your heart and in my heart as well. So we've got this great declaration, I am. We've got this great big problem. How do we stand before the I am? That leads us to a final resolution, an answer that Jesus brings to us. And again, I want to use another verse from the passage we read that illustrates this for us. And here it is. In John chapter 18, verse 8, Jesus said, I told you that I am he. And since I am the one you want, let the others go. Let these disciples go. You've got me, all right? Here I am, take me, let them go. And of course, Peter, you know, reaches with his sword, and I think he was aiming for the guy's head, but he, he cut off Malchus' ear. Look what it says in the passage there. Jesus goes on, he says, put your sword back into its sheath, Peter. Shall I not drink from the, here's a key word, from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? One of the other Gospels tells us that Jesus reached out and healed Malchus's ear and made him whole again because of what Peter did. And Jesus says to Peter, look, I've got to drink this cup of suffering. And this word cup, in the Bible, it refers to the pouring out of God's wrath. So when you hear about the cup of God, or the cup of God's wrath, it is God's judgment that's being poured out. Tim Keller says that in the secular mind, in the secular way of thinking, there is no judgment, there is no justice at the end of life because we're just animals. We're born and we die and that's it. 
for those who believe in more of a traditional kind of religion, the idea is that judgment comes at the end of life where everything's weighed out on the scales. Did you live a good enough life to to counterbalance the bad things that you did? But he said, in the gospel, in the gospel, the judge of all comes and is judged for you and me, takes on himself the judgment that we deserve so that he can look to his father and say, Father, let them go. Accept them. Receive them. I have paid the price for them. We call it his substitution for you and for me. Do you see how God solves the problem for us? And all he asks us to do is believe and accept and act on that truth. And you know, one of the ways you can tell somebody who's really been impacted by what Christ has done for them is they can't keep it quiet. They've got to talk about their Savior. Which reminds me of a historical story about a man by the name of Maximilian Kolbe. He was born in Poland in about 1893. There's a picture of him here. And at the age of 12, he said that he had a vision of the Virgin Mary. And the Virgin asked Maximilian if he would devote himself to living a holy and pure life and if he was willing to wear the crown that is red, which is a symbol for being martyred. And at the age of 12, he says, after his vision, he said to God that he would, that he would live a life that was pure and holy, and he would be willing to die for Christ. Well, as time went on, and he got older, he ended up earning his PhD in philosophy. He's a brilliant man. He started a monastery in Japan. He started a monastery in India, and they became very ill while he was in India, and he had to come back to Poland. And there he established a monastery and began to teach. Well, World War II came along. And when the Nazis invaded Poland, he had an opportunity to sign a piece of paper verifying his, his German bloodline. And that would exempt him from any kind of persecution. But he refused to do it. In fact, he kept on his priestly duties, and was beaten several times for continuing to preach the gospel and to warn people against the Nazis and the evil that they were practicing. It got to the point that they finally tore down his monastery that he had built and arrested him because he wouldn't stop writing against them and preaching against them. He was sent to the infamous Auschwitz. There in 1941... While in Auschwitz, 10 men escaped the camp. And the commandant of the camp wanted to teach all the prisoners a lesson. And so he demanded that there be 10 of them who would die for the 10 who escaped. And so 10 were chosen. And they were to be put in a bunker under the ground where they would starve to death. Well, one of the 10 men began to yell and to cry and to scream, please don't send me. I'm a father, I'm a husband, I have children at home. Please don't send me. Maximilian Kolbe, the priest, stepped forward and said, I don't have a wife, I don't have children. 
let him go and put me in his place. By God's grace, the Nazis agreed. They let the man with a wife and children at home, they let him go, and they took Colby and the other nine and threw them into this bunker. A man who survived Auschwitz, who had been tasked with cleaning the place, says that within two weeks, all nine men that had been thrown in with the priest were dead, but Colby, the priest, was still alive. So they took him out, and they gave him a lethal injection, and he died. The man whose place he took survived Auschwitz, and until he died at 93 years of age, he made it his mission to tell people about his Savior, Maximilian Kolbe. He had to tell people because nobody, nobody had ever done anything like that for him before. But the truth is, Jesus Christ has done that for each one of us. And in this dark world that we live in, in this spiritually dark world that we live in, he has brought us the light of hope, the light of salvation, the light of his grace. Jesus made the greatest declaration ever made in history. It draws attention to the biggest problem we've ever faced in history. And he resolved it by substituting himself for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done for us as we approach Resurrection Weekend, O God. I ask that in these days leading up to that celebration, we would be mindful, Father, what you have done for us and that we would be mindful that you live in us, that we would surrender ourselves to your holy presence. Forgive us our sins, Lord, we pray. Cleanse our hearts. Erase our unbelief. Grant us the peace of knowing your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next weekend.